Part 2 for the story of Queen Esther. Esther spent a long time in the king's palace until it was finally her turn to, to be with the king. And it was in Tavis in the year 3399 that it was finally her turn to go in. Haggai, who had been taking care of her and who had given her whatever she wanted and had no doubt that Esther would be the next queen, and he treated her like that, realized that he had a big problem on his on his plate because Esther refused to take anything. She's unlike all the rest of the contestants, so she wants nothing. She wants no gowns. She wants no makeup. She wants no perfume. None of the the special things or whatever requirements that every or any of the other contestants asked for, Esther wanted. And Haggai had to beg her to take, and Esther still refused. And then Haggai had to explain to her that if Esther didn't take um, the, bare, the bare minimum, Esther, whatever happens to Esther might happen to Esther, but Haggai would be killed. The king would be furious that one of the contestants wasn't, you know, playing this beauty competition game that everyone else was expected to play. And so Haggai said, you, you might not care whether you die or whether you don't, but I, will, I do care and you're, you're effectively killing me by not taking any of the adornments. So Esther only accepted the, ba- the bare min- minimum that Haggai pressed her to take. She wouldn't take anything extra. But the, the gossip already start, had already started. Everyone in the palace already began to hear, and Ahasuerus began to hear the same thing, that this contestant hadn't been interested initially in doing anything. And all the other girls had, had tried such creative things and so many ideas of what they wanted to bring to the king and the, 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 the creative ideas they had. And yet everyone heard this strange story of, the, of one of the contestants who would absolutely refuse to take anything. So Esther did end up going with some form of adornment but it was it was nothing more than what she was absolutely pressed by Haggai to take nothing more and the thing that was interesting about Esther she didn't need anything extra to to have admiration she had this incredible um, um, beauty and it wasn't just a regular beauty it was an inner beauty it was what we would describe as chain as as graciousness and this graciousness just endeared her to anyone that saw her What's really funny, and the rabbis point out to this, is that Esther never relied on her beauty, and she was able to save an entire nation. All the Jewish people were all saved because of her beauty, even though she never cared or relied on it. In fact, her very first presentation to the king wasn't, wasn't even, she wasn't relying on her beauty. Vashti did depend on her beauty, Ahasuerus' first wife, and she wasn't even able to save herself with her own beauty. And what's another interesting, interesting about Esther's appeal, before we talk about her actually walking into the, into the palace, is that she had this universal appeal. It wasn't like sometimes people have a certain beauty standard for a, a particular nationality or country or, or type. <coughs> and, you know, a person is considered extremely beautiful for that nationality. But in, another nation, na, in a different nationality, they're not considered beautiful at all. When it came to Esther, she had universal appeal. Anyone that saw her automatically said, yeah, this is a beautiful person. It wasn't, it wasn't a cultural thing. It wasn't a national thing. This was a universal fact. Everyone looked at Esther and said, this is a, considered a beautiful person. And as we mentioned in the earlier classes, in the earlier class, it's so interesting because technically, she, there are opinions that say that she wasn't even beautiful. They say that when it comes to grace, Yosef, the, Joseph, the, the, the premier of Egypt for Pharaoh, who was, who was considered an extremely handsome person, he was only blessed with a touch of grace. Esther, on the other hand, was laden with grace. Like, she had way more grace than one of the most graceful people that we know in history, Yosef, and she, Esther had way, way more than him. Way, way more than him. Ahasuerus had been unmarried for four years. The quest to find a wife had lasted for four years, and 
it ended with Esther. And people were so certain that Esther was going to be the winner. A massive bid was, was put out. People, were, people wanted to be, you know, the couriers of the king wanted to be that person that brought Esther into the king because they had no doubt that they were presenting the king with his future wife. So there was a massive bid. And you can actually see it in the words of the Megillah that it doesn't say that she was presented it said, and she was given. There was a massive bid and <coughs> one of the, one of the pe- whoever it was that won, paid the most amount of money and they were the one to bring Esther into the king. She was given off to the king and the second that he saw Esther, he decided that he wanted to marry her. It wasn't, it wasn't deliberations in regards to his decision, but unlike all the rest of the contestants where the, he spent you know, a, a single night deciding whether he wanted to be with Esther, he didn't marry her, he, didn't, he wasn't with her at all until a long time had gone by. He was, now that it was actually serious, now that he had actually seen someone for the first time who actually made sense, all the rest of the people were in no competition to Vashti. Well, he would, um, Ahasuerus should look at the, the picture on the wall of Vashti and then say, well, you know, that person's not really a serious contestant. When it came to Esther, he knew that she was the right person, so he slowed everything down. Because he was like, okay, now I need actually, now I need actually decide. And is this really the person I want to get married to? Because everything really did make sense. What's interesting is, it says, and the king and the king was, you know, deciding whether to marry her. It wasn't just Achashverosh that was waiting to decide whether to marry her. It was also Hashem. Hashem was was waiting and watching, waiting and watching to see is that the is this the right person to is this the right person to save the Jewish people or not save the Jewish people? And so Achashverosh. And Hashem were both sitting and waiting and watching to see if, if this was the right person. Like I mentioned, Achashverosh had a, a massive picture of Vashti on the wall. And every contestant would be compared to her. When Esther was um, like joined, um, came to the king, at that point, Achashverosh took down that picture. It wasn't a competition anymore. He took down the, the picture of Esther and straight away the... They took, they took down the picture of Vashti and straight away put up a picture of Esther. And at that point, at that point, um, Esther had a photo of her on the wall and he put a crown on her head and he put a throne next to his own. And even though initially the plan was that the queen would be, that the, the person that won the, the competition would be in replacement of Vashti, now it was different. Esther straight away, the second Akashreyash saw her, Esther became a royal queen. He wasn't a replacement of Vashti in the slides. Very important to understand that difference. It wasn't a replacement of Vashti. She was a royal queen. With all the royal uh, privileges that came, al- came along with being the, the main queen of the, of, the, of the king. And all the stipulations that had been placed on earlier that we mentioned in the earlier um, lesson. That, that was not placed on Esther. Esther was, was, was fully given the, all the privileges of, her, of a proper full fledged queen and interesting the rumor that had started spreading about esther the fact that she spurned the makeup and the perfumes and and also that he that she refused to divulge who she was and where she came from didn't make ahasuerus hate her actually made it made ahasuerus love her that much more he was so intrigued by her he couldn't work her out why would she possibly not want the makeup why would she possibly not be interested and why would she not possibly tell him about where she came from. And we'll get to that in a minute. But first, 
first thing is Achashosh made a feast. And like the earlier Shushan feast, with the very beginning, you know, years earlier when he had killed his w- wife during that feast, he wanted to invite all the same people back. You know, the, the feast that the, the feast that he had made for the for the capital city of Shushan had ended in such a disaster with the queen being murdered. Achashosh kind of wanted to invite all these people, and you know, you know, now that he has a, a queen who he considered to be far better than than Vashti ever was, he wanted to now celebrate Esther with the same people, and he asked Esther, and Esther actually advised him, don't do it. Esther said, these people in the capital city have been, have been um, plagued with a really bad situation. They've been hosting this beauty contest, con- uh, contest many of who had high hopes and then lost their hopes. You're going to invite them to a party. Though you're paying for the party, they're going to have to pay for all the rest of the expenses, the fancy clothing and getting themselves ready. The, the capital city has had enough. If you invite them, you're just going to be, you're not honoring them, you're just giving them more burden. Esther, Esther recommended instead, make, declare a national day of celebration. Let them all celebrate in their own houses. We'll have a celebration of the high dignitaries in the castle, and that way people will be able to enjoy the moment of you having a queen, at the same time, not have to be burdened by another party. And Achashresh liked that answer, and that's exactly what he did. He didn't invite the entire city of Shushan. He did invite people that he did make, still make a party, but at the same time, the, the, the recommendation that Esther made, Ahasuerus actually saw it through, and Ahasuerus was very impressed because he realized that Esther wasn't just a very beautiful and gracious person, but she was also a very, very wise person. And everyone appreciated her wisdom because she was on point. She, had, she understood how the people felt and she, she understood that this, is, this was a good idea to do. Ahasuerus also sent out gifts to all the people around the peoples around peoples around the world all the different countries so much work had gone into this competition and now that it was finally over after four years of 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 a disaster and Achashesh had made so many enemies along the way but now that it was finally over there were so many people that needed to be thanked and Achashesh actually sent out gifts to all the different peoples and you know thanking them for, for making this all happen. Because now that it had, now that Achshresh declared it to be so successful, because now that he had Esther, he, 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 he considered the whole thing to be a net positive situation. Now he wanted to like declare it to be over. And so he sent gifts out to all the different people. Achshresh had marital bliss. He was so excited. Esther was devastated because her life was ruined. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But Achshresh, King Achshresh was thrilled. He couldn't have expected anything, anyone at, at a fraction as good as Esther, and now the, the person who's now the queen and now his wife is someone who is highly qualified for the job, to say, to say the, the least. The only problem that plagued Achashresh and, and it amplified with time, it didn't get less with time, was Esther refused to divulge where she came from, who she was, what her, what her, who her family was, what, what nationality she belonged to. Nothing, not a single thing could Esther could Achashverosh get out of Esther, and it would. He was he was an obsessive person. You could see that throughout the story. His obsessions were were insane. I mean, the beauty contest itself is is testament to that. But he started to obsess, and he continued to obsess, and he would not let go. And Esther, Esther had been instructed by Mordechai, do not divulge your your background, your history. And so, no matter how much Achashverosh pressed her, no matter what he threatened, no matter how persuasive he was, Esther wouldn't budge. So it made Ahasuerus furious. At the same time, he kept on 
liking her. He wasn't furious, furious enough to kill her, but he, he, he was getting exasperating. And time went on. And you have to understand the Purim story. Most people imagine that the Purim story began, or the, you know, the, the, the devastating part of the Purim story, the decrees, began um, right after Esther was crowned queen. That's very much not the case. Years went by before Haman became a powerful person. And so along that process, Ahasuerus was pestering and begging and anything he could do to try get Esther to divulge where she came from and it just wouldn't work. Esther wouldn't beg. But he did a whole bunch of things. Firstly, he tried the obvious approach. He asked her straight out. He said, who are you? Where do you come from? And Esther refused to say. And eventually she admitted. She said, okay, you can have some information. I'm an orphan, which was true. I come from royal origin, which is also true. Remember, she's a descendant of the first Jewish king, but nothing more would she reveal. An orphan and being of royal origin was all that he would give, all that she would give him, and it drove him up the wall. And the fact that he had, that she admitted to being of royal origin was something even more bothersome because now he knew that she really was royalty, and now he he needed to know what type of royalty, which royalty, how royal. It, it drove him mad. And remember, Achashverosh was a person that was obsessed with royalty, especially because of his own checkered past, his own shattered past. There are opinions that say he didn't really come from such royal bearings, which meant. His obsession with royalty was something insane. Vashti, the fact that she came from royalty, was something that was very happy for him until, of course, she, she threw that in his face. Another trick he, tr- he tried, which is a pretty good trick as well, he sent royal gifts across the world in her name. He didn't do it in, in, in his own name. The gifts he sent in, in, across the world, thanking everyone, he said, this is coming from Esther. And he forgave a year's worth of taxes for the entire kingdom, 127 kingdoms. He, he forgave a ta- taxes for a full year. That's a fortune of money, all in Esther's name. And what he was trying to do is, he was trying to weed out relatives. You know, when someone may, wins the lottery, <clears throat> suddenly all distant relatives start popping up. Oh, I'm third cousins, and they come, they come running for favors. Ahasuerus said, if people realize how much money I'm willing to give, just because Esther's queen, if there's a single relative to be found, there is no doubt they're going to come forward. And so he just sent out presents and money and forgave taxes. And he was like, there's going to be a relative. Someone knows where she came from, comes from. And if she's not going to tell me, an eighth cousin twice removed is going to show up and say, I'm related and that's going to be all I need. At that point, I'll be able to know where she comes from. But it didn't happen. No one came forward. And that's actually shown a great credit to the Jewish people. The Jewish people knew exactly who she was. They knew where she came from. They knew every single answer to Achashverosh's questions. And not a single Jew showed up at the palace. And they knew they would have been rewarded very heavily. No one said a word. And people knew. They knew who Mordechai was. He was the leader of the Jewish people. They knew who Esther was. Esther was his wife and and, and, and relative. There were so many people that knew who she was, and not Jewish people that knew, not a single person stepped forward, which is considered such a wonderful quality and such a such a beautiful thing. That in spite of all the sinning that had been going on and all the unfortunate behavior that Jewish people were involved with at that time, no one decided to give in Esther. He also made a royal feast and he gave her um, um, wine to drink, hoping that that would loosen her lips. It didn't work. She she did not divulge where she came from. He also tried another trick, which is very interesting. He tried noticing who she pays attention to at the party. At the royal party in her honor, he paid really careful attention, trying to see, you know, if she's talking to a particular nationality, maybe she's a little more friendly, a little more joyous, a little more happy. And he said, well, people, when people are out of their own country and they meet someone from their own, a fellow countryman, they, they melt. They get a little jolly, a little happy. They have more to talk about. They, they talk about the, the local sites, the customs, the 
all the, the, the things they have in common. And Ahasuerus was watching really carefully to see, well, if one particular nation comes by and, and starts talking to Esther, maybe she'll be a little more friendly. And what's such an amazing quality about Esther, she was such a wonderful person. She was such a kind personality. She was so kind to everyone equally that Ahasuerus could not discern who she was more nice to. The people, especially people in power, that, you know, they, they have people they like and people they dislike. And when they, around people they like, they're more friendly and bubbly and kind. And the people they dislike, they spurn them and they're, they're rude to them. Ahasuerus couldn't find a single difference between the way she reacted to every single nationality. She was equally kind to each one. So there was, there was nothing to be had. He couldn't, un, he couldn't crack the secret. Where she came from and who she was. At one point, after, you know, trying so hard to work it out, Ahasuerus came to Esther and said, listen, I'm getting pressure not just from myself, but I'm getting pressure from my advisors. My advisors want to know who you are. You're now the second most powerful person in the world. Remember, Ahasuerus ruled the world at that time. We're not talking about just a regular king. That would have been enough anyway, but he ruled the world. You're the second most, person, most powerful person alive. My, my advisors helped me run the country. They want to know who you are. Where do you come from? And Esther said, are these the same advisors that advise you to kill, kill Vashti? Or sat quietly and, and let it happen? And Nachashverosh admitted, oh yeah, they, they, these are the same people. So I, 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 um, Esther said, if that's the case, then they're just helping you kill a second wife. They, they don't have your best interest at heart. You know, they, they helped you kill your first wife. Now they're trying to, 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 to amplify a, a situation to make you kill your second. They're more, they're, they're more grief than they're worth, argue, argued Esther. Akhashverosh said, listen, I run a, a massive kingdom. I need advisors. You can't run kingdom without advisors. So Esther said, you know what? If you want a good advisor, you should, find, you should follow in the footsteps of the earlier kings. The, the kings before before Ahasuerus, whether it was Dayavish or Koyosh or Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or Evamuradach, all of these kings all had one thing in common. They had a Jewish advisor that helped them run their kingdom. Why don't you have a Jewish advisor as well? Now, had a reason why he didn't have a Jewish advisor, but Ahasuerus was, was intrigued, and it's so funny how he didn't even catch on. But he said, okay, if that's the case, who do you, who do you recommend? And Esther said, there's, a, there's a, a, a Jewish man whose name is Mordechai, leader of the Jewish people, and he sits, he sits, um, he, he, he was already a low-level advisor. Why didn't you promote him, make him your official advisor, just like all the rest of the earlier kings? And Ahasuerus liked that idea. So he called Mordechai, and it turns out Mordechai was perfect for the job. And Ahasuerus appoints Mordechai as the head of the king's guard and the judge at the king's gate, which was an, a massive, massive position at this point. He was basically the chief justice of the, of the kingdom. And he was in charge of the, the guards that protected the king. So this, this is a massive um, upgrade. And it was all thanks to Esther, and the whole time Ahasuerus didn't even realize, well, not yet, that there was any connection between the two. She just assumed oh, she heard, that she had heard of this great man, Mordechai. Ahasuerus then calls in his new senior advisor and says, listen, I have a problem. I have a wife, and she refuses to, she refuses to tell me where she comes from. Now, the irony of this is, is fantastic, because the reason she refused, the reason she refused is because Mordechai said not to tell, and now... <coughs> Mordechai is being consulted how to get her to tell, which is which was which is fantastic and on so many levels. Mordechai actually gave her good gave Ahasuerus good advice on how to break through to Esther, and the reason was is because Mordechai was hoping that maybe the decree of Esther being in the palace was didn't have to be this way. Maybe Hashem was going to let Esther go back home, and Mordechai was hoping that 
he'd be able to be re- reunited with his wife. And so he said, you know what? Let me give advice that will really work. And if it actually works, this whole thing could be over. And then maybe Hashem really doesn't want Esther to be in the palace. Let me see if Hashem still wants to be this way. Hashem, does God still want Esther to be in the royal palace? Or is it time for her to come home? And so Esther told, Mordechai told Ahasuerus like this. If you want to get through to your wife, jealousy is the way to go. Make another beauty competition. Invite all the girls that want to come join the competition all over again. And then... You know, tell Esther, listen, either tell me where you come from, or I'm, I'm going to start picking more, uh, another wife to replace you. And, you know, then she's, of course, in a crack. And that's exactly what Achashverosh did. Achashverosh loved that idea. Mordechai also had other agendas. Mordechai was not, he was a Jewish person. In those times, Jewish people were not very popular. And unfortunately, that's the, sa- the same can be said about today. But Mordechai was dealing with a lot of anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic sentiment at the time. And he said, well, if I open up the beauty competition all over again, people that were interested in the beauty competition, they'll be very thrilled. And, you know, I'll get a mo- much more favorable um, public opinion you know, in this very, very difficult job. And another reason that he, that, he, that he advised the king like this is that he was worried that people would suspect that Esther and Mordechai were somehow connected. So if he was, you know, if Esther recommended that he had been appointed a senior advisor, and then he then recommended to essentially to replace Esther as queen, everyone would say, well, there's no way that Mordechai is, has any connection to Esther because that, you know, he would never backstab her like that. And so... Everyone assumed that, of course, Mordechai and Esther had nothing to do with each other. So if anyone was catching on, the fact that Mordechai was the one that suggested it would have straight away thrown them off the scent. The king ran a beauty competition. Esther never revealed where her origin was, which also showed on her, her incredible character. The fact that, you know, she, she really was uh, that type of personality that was going to be later on chosen to save the Jewish, Jewish people in such an amazing, incredible way. But also, the king wasn't interested in anyone. No one else found favor. The only person he was interested in was Esther, and Esther would not buckle under the pressure. And so Ahasuerus is actually left losing that battle, something with, which I'm sure he wasn't very happy or used to doing, where he actually had to, had to give up. But as time passed up, passed, as time passed along, he did manage to discover one thing, and that was that Esther had been raised in Mordechai's house. He managed to discover that. He managed to discover that she had lived in his house and he had raised her. And the the fact that she was Jewish, related to Mordechai, had married Mordechai. None of that had that passed his radar. That that he that of course he had no idea. And what, I think a, an incredible thing to to say about this is that he he had he Ahasuerus still assumed that Esther wasn't Jewish. And again, this is my own understanding of the story, but I, I think it really lays testament to what an incredible person Mordechai was. That that there was a person that had been raised in Mordechai's house had been taking care of him. Achresh knew those two pieces of information, and he still didn't assume that she was Jewish, which meant that Mordechai must have had this reputation of just being so kind and nice with all people, so not just Jewish people, but all people, because the fact that she had been raised in Mordechai's house wasn't enough information for Achresh to realize that she was Jewish. So it really speaks volumes about the type of person that Mordechai was and the reputation that he had, that no one suspected that, oh, this would definitely have had to be no Jewish. It could have been anyone, which I think is a wonderful thing. Esther and Ahasuerus were married, and they had a child. Before the Purim story even started, they had a child, and the child's name was Dayavish, or more more, like the anglicized version is Darius. He's also going to go later on by the name of Koresh, or Ahashtashta, Ahtarshasta. That's the Ahashtashta. 
Tarshasta. He's going to go by those two names as well. But this child was born for Esther and Ahasuerus before Haman gets to power, before the you know the the the, the start of the persecution of the Jewish people. There was a, Esther was already a, already raising a child in the royal palace, a heir to the throne, the person who was going to later on become the next king of the Persian Empire. During that time, and this doesn't really connect directly to the story of Esther, though at the very end of the story it does. During that time, there was an undercover, undercurrent of a rebellion going on. There was a king of Greece who had declared himself to be some form of enemy of Ahasuerus. He wanted to get rid of Ahasuerus. There was a lot of very... Um, a deep hatred towards Ahasuerus, whether he was just because he was powerful or he was the part of the Persian Empire, you know, they wanted their empires to be powerful. Also, just the straight-up disgust with Ahasuerus' behavior. There were so many things he did that just disgusted people. Chiefly among them was that massive beauty competition. But the king of Greece was starting to collect supports. And in the city, there were two very high-ranking officials who decided that they, if they kill the king... They, this would be a very good opportune time to, to do it. There were many reasons why they wanted to do it. And the plan initially, the plan was to poison the king in the middle of the night. One of them would go, would be off the shift and while the other one was on the shift and they would use that as an opportunity to poison the king. The question is, why do they want to kill the king? One opinion is they had been in charge of the royal guards. And then when Mordechai got his upgrade because of Esther, he had taken their job. So they were furious. So they, they actually said that two noblemen have been, have been replaced by a barbarian, talking about Mordechai being that barbarian. And so they, they were furious at the king because, you know, they, had, they were now simple people. Additionally, their job had downgraded, you know, from being in charge of all the royal guards to being an actual royal guard, which meant they were on their feet actually guarding the king instead of being in charge and coordinating it all, which meant they were actually spending shifts outside the king's chambers at night guarding the king and that just infuriated them so even though time had gone by they 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 were waiting for their right opportunity to to do off with the king additionally Mordechai was a Jew and Mordechai was was judging with the wisdom of Torah which was was such an incredible asset for the king but for people I guess that didn't enjoy um law or didn't enjoy you know getting to the bottom of truth they were saying, well, the kid, Mordechai is, you know, replacing Persian law with with, with a Torah. And they used the, the typical anti-Semitic troops, but they decided that if they get rid of the king, they can make a conspiracy, then get rid of Esther and Mordechai. And that was essentially what they wanted to do. They didn't know Esther was Jewish, but they, they wanted they wanted people to go back. According to opinion, actually, they were relatives of Vashti and still hated Ahasuerus for doing off with her in that end of the celebration when he killed his wife. They had been related to the king. Now they were nobodies, and so they, they were not thrilled with Ahasuerus or anyone involved. Another opinion says is that they really didn't have any reason to, to go against the king. Hashem just made them rage, that made them all ang- angry and worked up, and in such a way that later on along the story, this was, this was going to end up becoming very uh, beneficial. This, this assassination attempt would become very, very, very beneficial for Mordechai and Esther. So Hashem just orchestrated events in such a way that even before the, the, the bad news of Haman, that we'll get to in a bit, the Hashem already set into motion the, the seeds of the redemption. And another opinion is, like we mentioned at the beginning, they just wanted to curry favor with the Greeks. And they said, if we bring, if, if we deliver Ahasuerus's head on a silver platter to the king of Greece, we're going to be set up for a lot of power with a new government. So they said, well, let's, let's just do off with Ahasuerus. They were just, you know, social climbing. They were trying to, trying to get ahead in life. 
So they were plotting. Now they, they spoke a language called Tarshish. Tarshish is a very, very unpopular language. Almost no one speaks it. And so they safely planned their 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 plot in this language. Additionally, their opinions say they compounded this language with another language, making it even far more complicated and difficult for anyone to understand. And so they would go around planning their plots and knowing with certainty that there was no one that understood what they were talking about because there was no one that was that spoke Tarshish. Now, Mordechai, however, joins the royal, you know, government and he's hanging around and Mordechai never gave off that he understood, but because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, remember Mordechai was not young. Mordechai had been around for a long time, even in the times of the temple, and he was one of the members of the high court in the temple. And the rule is, if someone wants to be in the high court of the Jewish people, they need to know all 70 languages. Simply because if a litigant comes to court and he wants to say his piece, he wants to say why he's right or why he's you know why he's just just or not why whatever he needs to say at court and it's there's a translator that gets in the way that says you know this person says such and such the the judges in the court cannot properly rule because they're going to lose so much in that translation lost in translation is is a very real terminology you know when you translate from one language to another language so much context is lost so the rule became if someone wants to be in the high court of the jewish people they need to be fluent in all 70 languages that was that was just a, a starting point of course you need to know law and you need to know terror you need to be upstanding individual your personality etc there were so many there were so many other qualifications but a, a starting line qualification to be in the high court of the jewish people was of course knowing all 70 languages the Mordechai, of course, knows 70 languages. So he hung around and he just listened. And at some point he started to realize these people are plotting to kill the king. And that's that's not good at all. And being that he was now a member of this government, that he lived in that country, he, he believed he had a patriotic duty to inform the king. But he decided not to do it in the regular way. Instead of just informing the king himself, he said, Hashem orchestrated at events that Esther's in the palace. And I had this vision, this this what he considered to be a form of prophecy, that this is where Esther belongs. And she has something very important to do for the Jewish people down the line. He said, I could just tell the king, or instead of me getting all the credit and all the attention, I could give this information to Esther, let her present this to the king as something she discovered on her own, and then she'll be credited for saving the king. So sometime down the line, when Esther needs to do whatever she needs to do for the Jewish people, let her use this information as, you know, as, as bargaining chips, reminding the king, by the way, I also saved your life, I'm not just your wife. So uh, Mordechai went to Esther secretly and told Esther, listen, this is very good information. I literally overheard them um, plotting. These two men, these two men, Big Son and Seresh, are planning to assassinate the king by poison. He had had all the information because he overheard it all. And he told Esther, you go tell the king in your own name that this is something you uncovered. Esther went to the king. But instead of saying that this was something that she uncovered, she said it in Mordechai. She said, I spoke to Mordechai, Mordechai uncovered a plot, and she gave Mordechai all the credit. And <clears throat> what's incredible is, this little piece of information, the fact that she gave Mordechai the credit, ends up becoming the, the, one of the massive linchpins in the entire story, ensuring the survival of the Jewish people. And the rabbis actually say that when you say something and you quote someone else as saying it, this brings redemption to the world. Had Esther just given the information and taken the credit for herself, instead of quoting that this information came from Mordechai, it doesn't it like it, it would have another day would have passed and it would have all been fine. But it turns out the whole redemption was was hinged on Mordechai being the one to get the credit. And Esther just understood the right thing to do is when someone someone's deserving of of recognition, if someone said something that's clever or smart, give that person the recognition. And it's what's interesting is you'll see in the Gemara, 
in the, in the Talmud, you'll see over and over examples where one rabbi will quote another rabbi who will quote another rabbi because they're trying to fulfill what Esther did. They're trying to learn that lesson that it brings redemption when you quote someone when they say something and they want to make sure that all the people that had this opinion are all quoted along the, along the process. The Achashverosh was very interested, of course, in this information. It was a plot against his life. He took that information and he decided to investigate. And there are different opinions of how exactly he investigated. One opinion says he found traces of poison. Because they already caught on that somehow something in the palace was different. And they realized that they were being investigated. So they started backtracking, trying to undo all the damage. But it, they found evidence of poison. And that was enough to, that was enough to realize that this, this, was a real, this was real information. And they were killed. Another opinion says that the... The fact that they both that they decided that one person would take the guard shift and the other person would prepare the poison, that was enough. When they realized that one of them was missing by the post, straight away they understood that this was a real this was a real assassination attempt. They were impaled to death. They were they were put they were left to hang on a single pole. They were both impaled. And Haman, who was related and not yet so powerful, tried his absolute best to try to stop the to try to stop the, the death of his two relatives, Big Son and Seresh, but no matter what he did, Achashesh wouldn't have it. Achashesh wasn't interested in listening to him, and both of them were killed. But Haman, now that, that, you know, now that what had been done had been done, and Big Son and Seresh are both killed for trying to assassinate the king, Haman um, laid the blame for this whole thing on Mordechai, said him. Mordechai was the one that discovered the plot. So Haman was already starting to be, begin to really, really hate Mordechai, and that was only going to grow. Now, because this, this, this podcast is all about the story of Esther, not, not really the, the full story of Purim, let's say, I'll go quickly through the next um, few steps in the, in the story that don't really impact Esther directly, but at the same time, of course, it's, there's no way to, to, to understand the story of Esther without understanding this. At, after that story, Haman gets promoted, and his promotion is very swift. It's it's incredible how quickly he gets promoted to being so so powerful, and he gets so pow- powerfully promoted. And because he came from nowhere, he literally he was a barber, he was a, maybe a general of the king at one point. But he he really was. People in Shushan remembered him being a barber. They remembered getting their hair cut from him, and he really was conscious of that. He understood that, and so he made an incredible amount of rules about bowing down to him, for example, and. He expected everyone to be bowing down to him. And he had all these rules of, about how people have to bow down and how far down they have to bow down. And he, he went on a, on a massive ego trip that was just so unbelievably insane. And yet everyone had to go along with it because he just kept on growing with power and people were terrified of him. The only person that refused to bow down in the city of Shushan was Mordechai. And not only that, Mordechai would go out of his way not to bow down to Haman. And it infuriated him. It made him so angry. There was nothing he could do because Mordechai was, a, was also a very high-ranking person. So he wasn't just a regular person he could just kill. And so Haman be- began to hate the Jewish people, especially Mordechai. And he decided that it, he needs to destroy all the Jewish people once and for all. He's going to make a, a decree and get every single Jewish person killed. He makes a lottery. And the lottery falls out on the 13th of Adar. And that lottery... He then had the information that was, it was more of a spiritual lottery as well. And he decided he's going to take that information, go to the king. He tells the king he's willing to pay to have the Jewish people assassinated. But remember, Achashverosh was no friend of the Jews. And he was more than happy to do it, even without the payment. And so they sent decrees across the entire country, telling all the people that in a year, or a little less than a year from, from then, 
every single Jewish person around the world on one day, on the 13th of other, would all be free to be killed. In fact, instructed that all everyone was to find whatever Jews you could and kill them all on, all on this one day. And that became an official decree, a decree that couldn't be undone. And Mordechai and, and Haman, with that decree, got even more power. The king literally gave him his signet ring that he could do and make whatever decrees he wanted at that point. So Haman had absolute control of the entire kingdom. And that's kind of the setting of where this story continues, where Esther gets you know, injected back in the story. Now, that meeting between Ahasuerus and Haman, where Haman now sent out these, these, this law that everyone is to assassinate the Jews on the 13th of Adar and in almost a year's time from then, no one knew about it at that point. It was something that the, the two of them discussed, and Haman wasn't exactly telling anyone yet, not until it was official. And so, in the heavens, however, they knew. And there's a really interesting medrash, there's a story brought down. It says that when the decree was made in the heavens, Elioa Navi, the prophet Elijah, who you know is always there to help the Jewish people, he ran to the forefathers, to Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and told them, he said, there's a massive decree against all the Jewish people, we need to do we need to do something. And the forefathers said that they couldn't help. So Eliyahu and Navi said, okay, I need to go to Moses. I need to go to Moshe Rabbeinu. So he rushed to Moshe Rabbeinu in the heavens. And he told Moshe Rabbeinu, the Jewish people have a serious accusation against them. You spent your life defending them. You put your neck on the line so many times for the Jewish people. There's got to be something you could do. So Mordechai, uh, uh, Moshe, Moses in heaven, said to Elijah in heaven, he said, are there any worthy Jewish people living at this time? And Elijah said, Eliyahu Navi said, yes, there's one Jewish man by the name of Mordechai. He's a righteous man. So Moshe said, go tell him to get the Jewish people to repent. So that way the, the, the accusation could be reverted, could be taken away. Eliyahu said, but in heaven they've already decided. This is a decree that's coming from heaven. Remember, decrees on earth come from decrees in heaven. And if the heaven's already decided, then w- w- what's the use? So Moshe asked something very interesting. He said, the decree in heaven, has it been in has it been um, um, formed in clay or has it been formed in blood? Has it been sealed with clay or sealed with blood? And again, I don't understand fully what that means, what the difference between clay and blood is, but this is, this is as the story is. Um, Eliel says it's, it's been sealed with clay. It's been written in clay. And so Moshe tells Eliel, go tell Mordechai because it's not too late. They still can fix it up. So Mordechai discovers the news. There's opinions also say that he saw, that he, he discovered the news by way of a dream. But whatever the case was, he discovered the news and Mordechai was devastated. And he comes out into the street and he sees three children um, leaving the study hall. And Mordechai decides to ask them what they were learning about. There's, there's, there's an interesting tradition, a story, like a, an idea that if you want to have like some like semi type of prophetic um, answer from God. What you do is you go to a young child who's learning, you know, Torah, and come and you ask them what they learned that day. And from the answer, you kind of deduce some form of like answer about you know what what you're looking for. So Mordechai decided to do this test, and he went to these three children and asked them, "What were you learning in school today?" And the first one says, "We learned the verse by." King Solomon, by Shlomo Melech in Kahelis, it says, Al Tira, don't fear. And the translation of it is, don't fear sudden terrors or disasters of, of the wicked, of the, or disasters of the wicked when they come. Very, very hopeful, a very hopeful thing. Basically, don't fear um, terror, don't fear wicked people. And the, he asked the second child, what, what did you learn in school today? And he said, he, he quoted from Yeshaya. He said, 
which means hatch a plot and it will be foiled. Agree on action and it will not succeed, for Hashem is with us. Again, another very, very hopeful message. And he asked the third child, what did you learn at school? And he also quoted from Isaiah, and he said, which the translation of that verse is, until you grow old, I will be the same. When you turn gray, it will be I that carries you. I am the maker and I am the bearer and I will carry you and rescue you. So three very, very hopeful uh, messages from these three children. All of those messages are talking about God protecting the Jewish people. Now, what Mordechai didn't know was that he was being followed. As he was walking down the street to, you know, in, in complete panic, because he'd either received a message from Elijah the prophet, or he'd received a message in a dream about the destruction of the Jewish people, this decree of, of destruction. As he was walking the street, he was being followed by Haman. Haman was leaving the palace. So Mordechai got the information literally as it was happening, and Haman was leaving the palace, and he had all his henchmen with him, and he sees his arch enemy. And so he follows behind, and he sees him stopping three children, and he's so curious, and he overhears, and he sees that, Mo- that Mordechai starts laughing. Because Mordechai understood that there, there was still hope to be had, although there was such a dread- dreadful decree, all the Jewish people being killed all on a single day, but Mordechai understood that there was a lot of hope to be had if the Jewish people repent. So Mordechai started laughing. And Haman was furious. And Haman decided, you see what type of person Haman was, he decided that when the destruction of the Jewish people happens, when, he, when the genocide of all of the Jewish people occurs, it's going to be the children he wants to start off with. He wants to make sure that it's the children that are killed first. What's really interesting is the Rebbe has, the Babacher Rebbe has an explanation on this story. And he, and he says, if Mordechai was so devastated by the news, and right after the children's story, Mordechai is going to put on sackcloth and ashes and be in complete agony. And, it, and the, de- the details are heartbreaking. You realize just how pained Mordechai was about the whole situation. Why was he laughing and so hopeful? And the Lubavitcher Rebbe explains in very brief that Mordechai was trying to find is the spark of the Jewish people still alive? And the litmus test for that was the children. He needed to find out when the children go in the street, what are they like? Are they still carrying that spark inside of them? Because if they are, then then the children can transfer that energy and that positive, that godliness to their parents. So the second he realized that the children still had that 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 trueness inside them, they still had that that godly spark and that ability to connect to God. Mordechai realized there's a lot of work. Everyone needs to repent. They need to undo all those mistakes that they made three generations ago, bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, bowing down to idolatry, basically, and. And then going to Ahasuerus' feast and, and being a part of that debacle, Mordechai understood there's a lot of repentance that Jewish people have to, have to do, but deep down within every single Jew still lying dormant, that godly spark that needs to be woken up, and it's not a mission impossible, it's still able to happen. Mordechai, after that, tore his clothes, donned sackcloth, and put ashes on top of him, like burnt ashes and put the ashes on top of himself, and then he decided to go to the king's palace. Now, you can't go inside a king's palace while you're wearing sackcloth and ashes. And Mordechai knew that. That's, that's that basic law. So what he decided to do instead was, he, wouldn't, he refused to take his sackcloth and ashes off. He decided to go outside the palace. Remember, he's one of the most senior people in the kingdom. And he started screaming and shouting, making a massive scene. His hope was that he would make such a scene that the king would personally request him. My understanding also is, is that access at this point had already started being denied by Haman, which meant getting in would be very difficult. But if Mordechai, such a high-profile person, would make such a massive scene in front of the castle, it would intrigue Ahasuerus, and he would say, well, let, let the person in. Then Haman couldn't do anything. So Mordechai made a massive scene. It didn't work. Ahasuerus, for whatever, whether he didn't know about it, whether he didn't care, or whether Haman stopped it, Mordechai did not get access to the, to the palace, in spite of the fact that he was screaming and shouting outside the king's palace. Mordechai had the ark containing the Torah scrolls 
brought out into the marketplace, covered in sackcloth and ashes. And he wanted, as the custom was in, in times of distress, he wanted the Jewish people to pray out in the public with with the actual ark containing the Torah scrolls out in the out in the street, which is like like even the Torah is mourning together with everyone else. Across the world, the, the letters that Haman started sending out about the genocide of the Jewish people started reaching there. Now, it created complete pandemonium. People knew that they had 11 months left till that official day when they were allowed to kill Jewish people. But there were so many people that had been waiting a lifetime or 30 lifetimes to do something like this. They hated Jews already. They didn't need much of an invitation. They didn't need special royal instructions to kill the Jews. This is what they wanted to do. So although the official date was in 11 months, the Jewish, the, the Jewish people were already dealing with a massive spike in anti-Semitism because people were, weren't waiting for the official date. They'd already gone on riots and campaigns and, and, and literally killing Jews in the street with absolutely no consequence. And there was, there was so much chaos everywhere. The, in Shushan itself, the king kept order, which meant that people couldn't kill the Jewish people until that official date. Mm-hmm. But everywhere else, people, people, the Jewish people were getting killed and and mass because the the no one there was no order to be to be had, and people were like, "Well, this is a royal decree, you know. Well, let's get ahead of this." The Jewish people were so desperate that so many of them started begging their neighbors, people in their countries, people they were friends with. They said, "Listen, we're going to get killed, but at least take our children as slaves. That way, our children somehow survive." and you know, they, they won't be killed because they'll be, they'll be your slave. And the people, all the people of the, across the world, weren't, they weren't interested. No one wanted to harbor a Jew. They knew if they harbored the Jew, they risked getting killed. And so they just said no. And the Jewish people literally realized at that point they had no friends. There was nobody to turn to. They had no other options. The only thing left for them to do was to return to Hashem, to ask Hashem for forgiveness and, and, and commit to being, to being a better, a better version of themselves. So, it, it, it took Haman's decree for the Jewish people to finally realize that the only way that they were able to be safe, the only way that they that they could somehow survive, was going to be a miracle from God. There was no other. There was no other way for them to do it. The the Megillah in the actual text itself describes six different types of of repentance that they did: great mourning, fasting, crying, wailing, sackcloth, ashes. These six different ways. What's interesting is they mirror the six days the Jewish people enjoyed at the feast. The the feast of Shushan. It was seven days, but the Shabbos, the day of Saturday, Saturday Shabbos, they didn't actually go, they didn't join the feast. But the other six days they had joined it. And so this in sadness and in, like intensification of the sadness was something that like mirrored the, the big sin that they, that, that they had been involved in. What's interesting also about the sadness is this regular sadness gets weaker. You know, it's very strong when you first hear a decree, but then it gets weaker and weaker. In this case, people knew that the end was coming. So the first day, as soon as they heard the decree, they were devastated. But then they, the next day they realized, okay, we have one left, one less de- day left to live. So the sadness kept on amplifying with time. It wasn't like it got weaker. And the, the state of repentance kept on in- intensifying as well because the Jewish people realized, that's it. We're, we're entirely out of news and we, we're entirely out of, out of good, out of, you know, opportunities for freedom. That's it. We're 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 gonna we're all gonna perish. And so Mordechai's call for national um, repentance was something that the Jewish people it resonated with them because they realized that literally we have no other choice. There's no one to help us. Ahasuerus, who they had thought was some friend of the Jews, or at least you know didn't hate the Jews so so much, had completely gone along with Haman's plot and had now was responsible for orchestrating a Jewish genocide. And they realize that's it. We don't have any more friends. What's so interesting about the story is that Esther 
although she had been literally next door, right right there by the, the crease, she was entirely unaware of what, what was going on. She didn't know the plot of Ahasuerus. She didn't know about the plot of Haman, about killing all the Jewish people. She was in the palace itself, and she had no idea. There's actually there's an opinion that says that Esther wasn't aware of what was going on because the day when that plot was hatched was the day before Pesach. What, would, what, what people uh, typically do the day before Pesach is they clean the house and destroy all the all the leavened bread and anything else that any other chametz on on Pesach. Esther was so busy with that, she was fulfilling that verse that says when a person's involved in a mitzvah, they don't know any harm. She literally didn't know about the destruction of the Jewish people, the plot and to to destroy all the Jewish people because she was so busy. Destroying the Hamas. It also shows you that even though she was married to Achashverosh and she had a child from Achashverosh and she was living in the castle, she kept all Torah and Mitzvah. Anything she could do, she was doing it. And so she was keeping Torah and Mitzvah. She was even uh, uh, the, the commandment of destroying Levin before the start of Pesach. She was involved in that. And she was so involved that she had no idea that one of the worst plots in Jewish history, history was unfolding in the same building. But then she's then her her messengers came. She had her, she had a massive. She was a queen of the empire, so she had a massive staff of of attendants and helpers and servants. And they started coming to her, telling her, telling her they'd seen something shocking. Mordechai is in the in the street. He's screaming and shouting. He's he's entirely disheveled. He has ashes on his on his head. He's has he's wearing sackcloth and he's fasting. And so she she knew something something absolutely dreadful had, had happened the the just the news of Mordechai's um panic sent her, her through an extreme panic there are opinions that said that she that she miscarried just hearing the news of of Mordechai um you know Mordechai's um um distress even though she didn't even know what it was she, as as you can see she's she's going to try to discover what it was but just hearing about Mordechai's distress really really affected her whether whether she actually became a nidda whether she started menstruating or or bowel movements according to one opinion she literally miscarried and it, she never had any children after that like that the, the the that instant fast attack of extreme panic was such a medical um situation for her when she heard about Mordechai's distress it shows you you know the connection they had with the two, and the sensitivity she had towards Mordechai. Just hearing that he was distressed, without even knowing what it was, it happened to be one of the worst things in history. But it, it, she didn't even know that yet. So what did she do? She hears that Mordechai is so distressed. She she told her messengers, "Go take clothes, bring it to Mordechai, because of course he can't go to the palace even to visit Esther without without looking, you know, like a like a respectable person with nice fine clothes that are clean, etc." And she said. If it's such bad news that Mordechai is this devastated, whatever it is, she, he needs to come to her. So he sent messengers with the clothes. And what's interesting is Mordechai ref- refused to come. He had committed, until he, has, he sees signs of salvation from Hashem, he is not changing his clothes. He's not getting into fancy clothes. That's it. He is just praying to Hashem. And you can see the theme throughout the Purim story is this, this, this uh, repulsion of trying to be in control. And this idea of just letting yourself Letting, your, letting yourself be accepting of God. Letting you understand that God runs the world. That's a very strong theme, and we'll touch upon that a little bit later. But the, the, the theme that Hashem runs the world, and what we do in this world is, is just in order for us to be members of the Hashem always wants us to you know, do the bare minimum. But anything more than that, we don't need to do, and also we don't need to care about and focus on, because really, 
our successes and fails and everything in between all comes from Hashem and that God controls the world absolutely. That was to become a massive theme. And until Mordechai decided, until I'm ready, until I start seeing salvation from Hashem, I'm going to keep on doing what's really important, praying and begging God to, to annul this dreadful decree. So Mordechai didn't just take the didn't just refuse the the clothes, he sent the clothes back to the queen. And that was a big message. That was a, Mordechai had to respect the queen. Yes, it was his wife, and yes, it, it, it was someone who, you know, she was a member of the Jewish people, and Mordechai was the head of the Jewish people, but Esther was the queen of the Persian Empire. He had to listen to her, and Esther knew that Mordechai would listen to her. And the fact that he sent her back, Esther realized, whatever she thought, was the bad situation. It was obviously and clearly a lot, lot worse than she could imagine. And she still didn't know what it was. She had no idea of what of the plot that had been hatched. And so the fact that the clothes had been sent back, Esther, the only thing she understood was that the decree was something very, very large. It was a very, very serious decree, something that had absolutely devastated Mordechai. So this time she had to change her strategy a little bit. She couldn't get Mordechai to come, but she needed to work out what had happened and why it had happened. What, is, what, what exactly was going on? And she realized this time she couldn't just send one of her messengers because the messengers wouldn't be able to do the job properly. So she needed to send someone special. And that's, this gets into this really interesting discussion of Hasach. Hasach was an advisor to Esther. He was a, a, a very important person. That much all opinions agree. He was a very important person, and Esther said, if I want Mordechai to take me seriously and realize I need to find out what's going on, and he needs to tell me, I need to send Hasach. So she sent Hasach to find out what had happened and for what reason it had happened. And now there's this discussion, who was Hasach? One opinion says, Hasach was the prophet Daniel. Yes, that same Daniel, Daniel that was thrown into the lion's den decades earlier. He had been a very important person in the king's palace. And not just that king, many of the Belshazzar as well. He's the one that, wrote, that read the writing on the wall. We're talking about a very, very important um, Jewish figure, very important Jewish hero. And what happened is he, he had been a very high advisor of Ahasuerus. But as he started to see the... Or as Ahasuerus started to realize what direction his empire and his, his, you know, his, his opinions and protocols and laws were starting to head in. He said, well, I can't have a Jewish person running my, king- my kingdom in such an intimate way because a lot of the laws that are coming out now are very anti-Jewish and he's, you know, he's obviously split about that. He doesn't want to die. So Ahasuerus said, well, I don't want to get rid of him. He's a massive asset. So I'll send him to the queen's palace and he'll be in charge of arranging affairs for her. And so Daniel you know, was, was downgraded in a massive way. The question, of course, is why wasn't his name Daniel? Why Hasach? There's an opinion that says because Daniel has the same um, numerical value, same gematria as Haman, 95, both of them equal 95, Dan, um, Daniel changed his name. He was so disgusted by Haman. He was so horrified that such a person existed and that they shared numerical value. So Daniel decided he wants to change his name to a different name. That way he has no association with such a dreadful person. So Esther, seeing that Mordechai had spurned the, the clothing, decided, you know what, let me send Daniel to be the messenger. Someone as important as Daniel, Mordechai will never ignore. You know, they're, they're, they're both two of the most important Jewish people living at that time. There's no way that Mordechai would just tell Daniel, no, I'm not talking to you. So he sent, he sent Daniel. She sent Daniel. There's another opinion that Hasach was just an official, uh, official of, of the king. Oh, it was, just, it was just an official king, or king, uh, official of uh, an official of Esther, and the, Hasach was his name. He was a very important person, and the same same idea. He was because he was very important. Esther said he was, he's a safe person to to send. 
But according to the opinion that was Daniel, there was also additional reasons why Esther sent Daniel to be the messenger. And that was because Daniel, everyone knew him to be an official of the king, Mordechai and Daniel talking to each other wouldn't have been suspicious. It wouldn't have led back to Esther necessarily. So um, Esther said, if I need to send someone, I'm going to send one of my own um, own messengers. People are going to start to get very suspicious with Esther's people keeping on walking in and out of Mordechai's um, area or Mordechai's house. But if the person I send is someone from the king, people just assume that the messenger is coming from the king and they won't even get suspicious. What's really interesting is when um, Esther does meet, when Esther's messenger, Daniel, does meet, or Hasach does meet Mordechai, they don't go into private. What they actually do is they speak in front of the king's gate. They speak in open, you know, in the street, literally. Everyone is walking by and no one suspects that what they're speaking about is enough information to kill all the Jewish people and to get so many people in trouble. They're speaking such sensitive material. And what's interesting is sometimes sensitive material is better said in public. In, you know, in, in clear view of everyone, and no one will assume that what you're saying is sensitive. But if you lock yourself in a bunch of rooms with locks and gates and guards and soldiers, people start to get really cocky. Okay, what are they discussing? And it turns into a, a massive, massive spectacle. Sometimes when it's in front of everyone's face, people just say, oh, yeah, it's probably nothing. Because if it was something private, they would have spoken in private. So that's, that's actually what happened. Hosach goes to Daniel. Sorry. Hosach goes to Mordechai whether it was Daniel, according to one opinion or not, and he goes to Mordechai, and he tells, and Mordechai, and asks, asks this message, what has happened, and what, what's going on, why is it happening, and Mordechai told Hasach everything, the, all the information that Mordechai already had, that he had been, he'd, he'd already been received, he told all that information to Esther, and he also told Hasach, he managed to get hold of a copy of the decree that Haman had sent out to all the countries, and he told Hasach, bring this decree back to Esther, so she, so, so she realizes that this is really a decree, and this is a, this is a real decree, and she needs to actually do something. And Mordechai said, you have kept your secret for years, not telling Ahasuerus who you are. Now what you need to do is you need to go to the king, you need to tell him that you're Jewish, and you need to beg the king to revoke the, to revoke the decree. Now, in in you know in, in a subplot, what's what's so devastating about this is until that point, Mordechai and Esther could get married, which meant that because Esther had been captured, she was Mordechai's wife. She'd been captured against her will, never given an opportunity to ever leave, never willingly gone to the king. The only time she'd gone to the king is when the king had forced her to go. She was essentially a captive, and according to Jewish law, a captive is allowed to go back to her husband after. You know, she, after she, she experiences freedom because it was against her will. Never in all the years that Esther had been with King Ahasuerus had she ever willingly gone to the king because she always had this hope that one day Ahasuerus would go and or Ahasuerus would kick her out of the castle, whatever it was, it didn't matter for her. And she'd be able to go back to her original husband, Mordechai, and they could be a happy family like she wanted. And so that was always, that was what kept her going, knowing that one day this dreadful situation will be over and I'll be able to go back to Mordechai because... I've never willingly um, um, betrayed him or betrayed the marriage because everything has been addressed. It's all been against my will. But now what Mordechai was asking Esther to do is go plead on behalf of the Jewish people. This would be her willingly going to the king to ask the king something. She had never done that in all the years of marriage. So now Mordechai effectively was telling her, our marriage is going to be over. We're never going to be married again. We're never to be able to be with each other again because... You know, you're you're now willingly going to Achashverosh, which means our marriage is now officially over, and that was something that was 
I mean, devastating to both Mordechai and devastating to Esther. And of course, Esther, she was devastated. This is not something she, she wanted to hear from Mordechai. And as you're going to see in the upcoming class, this was going to be something that she really, really wanted to get out of. Dealing with all the rest of the suffering, it's unimaginable. But this was, this was something very serious. This was something that there was, there was, no, there was no way to undo this. The damage of, of her going to the king would be something that would haunt her for the rest of her life. And she wanted to see what could be, do, what, what could be done about that.